Welcome to ARCnex Sessions, episode 85. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be discussing some recent awarding news stories, I guess you could call it. We'll be uh, looking at the winners of the 2016 Aga Khan Award for Architecture, the 2016 winner of the prestigious Sterling Prize, and on a slightly lighter note, the results of the competition, good walls make good neighbors, Mr. Trump. I guess uh, Trump can't escape any media these days, unfortunately, even Arc Next Sessions. <laughs> unfortunately for us, yeah. yeah. Well, before we get started, I'd like to quickly share a, a note from this week's sponsor, BQE. Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner, BQE Software, and the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It will help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. Our podcast listeners can get a fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice at www.bqe.com forward slash Archonnect. All right, on to the news. Where shall we start, Amelia? I think we should start with this one beautiful building, the recipient of the 2016 Sterling Prize, which is the Newport Street Gallery by Caruso St. John Architects. Uh, the Newport Street Gallery is the official gallery of Damien Hirst's personal collection. So last year in L.A., we saw the opening of the Broad Museum, which is to showcase the Broad family's own personal collection of these kind of blue chip contemporary and modern art pieces. And this is to showcase various selections of Damien Hirst's personal collection. So you can imagine what that might include. At first, when I was going through it, I thought, oh, it's just going to be art. But apparently it also includes things like medical prostheses and random objects and things that he just finds enjoyable and worth possessing, I suppose. But this one is this particular building has been pointed out by the Sterling Prize for particularly certain elements such as taking over three pre-existing structures and how they've kind of adapted them to suit this new program. And the fact that it has this very, in some ways, very British brick facade, but and also specifically to the weakened knees of Oliver Wainwright for The Guardian and, and our very <laughs> own Donna Sink, really beautiful staircases and handrails. So what do you guys think of this building or, or what did you think about the, the buildings that lost out? I have not paid attention to the buildings that lost out. Ken, have you? <laughs> <laughs> No. That might be a rough question, Amelia. <laughs> <laughs> well, of the shortlist, yeah. of the shortlist, this one kind of was, in a way, I don't think many people's favorite. It certainly wasn't the popular favorite. Mostly, I would guess, because it has this kind of simplistic brick appearance, whereas the other project, a lot of the other projects, had these more dramatic, iconic potentials with swooping glass and more institutional feels. Where this one is a little bit, dare I say, subtle. It's also like the facade faces a train tracks. So it's not exactly like in a perspective where you would just come across the facade of it on the street and be able to observe it as you might like one of these more dramatic other shortlisted buildings. Well, I mean, honestly, that to me is partly why I'm so excited about this as the winner, because it's a it's an adaptive reuse in a lot of ways. There were existing buildings on site that were incorporated into the new construction and everything that starts to shift the focus of non-architects away from believing that all that architects do is take an empty, open, you know, green plot of land and plop an object on it. As much as we can convince the world that we do things that are much more complex than that, um, I'm happy with. So one of the things I really do love about this project winning this award, which is for basically the best building of the year, 
I think, in the UK, is that it's using an adaptive reuse and that it's using these very subtle moves of different colors of brick and matching the scale of the existing street as well as the openings on the existing facades. I mean, I think in terms of a, an adaptive reuse addition project, which is the kind of work I've done most of my career, it's really excellent. It's, it's really first rate. One of the comments to the article was that uh, a comment from the jury was that the design is irreverent yet sensitive, which I thought was perfect. Like it's very sensitive to the subtleties of the existing buildings in the neighborhood, but it's also just a little bit funky. Yeah, it's almost a little bit more conservative than Hearst himself in that way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that particularly knowing like his style of work and incorporating it with this certain style of architecture and and the the kind of reference to industrial architecture with the kind of roofing and and the fact that it's an adaptive reuse project. It makes I mean, the buildings are listed from 1913. It's pretty astounding, really, that they've held up in this way and that they've been able they were originally seen painting studios for Victorian theaterscapes. And it's just like a fantastic kind of heritage to draw on for an art gallery. So I think it's, it's I think it's a really fascinating space. I hope I get to visit it at one point. I mean, I think I, the thing I would relate it to, I, I love your comment, Amelia, that it's it seems almost uncharacteristic for Damien Hirst because his work is so out there and, you know, grabs your attention. But his work is also always incredibly well crafted. And that to me has been the highest point of it, that he's He's doing things that are very finely made. They're always just exceptionally well-crafted and beautiful in that way, whatever their content might be. Hmm. Yeah, I actually agree. I think I think the uh, the building does suit his work quite nicely. I, I really appreciate this, this type of architecture. It's kind of a nice contrast to a lot of the work that we see in, <laughs> in uh, architectural media these days, which is a lot of flashy stuff that looks great in, in, uh, in, in renderings and drawings and photographs. This building strikes me, I haven't been there, but it strikes me as a really nice space to, to be in and to, and to view art in. And it seems like the, uh, the quality of the construction is, is extremely high high end. And I mean, I think that this approach to architecture often gets overlooked, you know, when the majority of the world is is viewing architecture through two-dimensional 72 DPI images. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to take the opposite position of all of you on this one. All right. Um, so <laughs> we're not on, supposed Ken. to disagree on anything. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I think, well, part of my problem is whenever I see a building done this well, and it's done well. And I'm not going to take away from the, the, the how it's contextually uh, works in this overall scheme. However, whenever I see a building like this, two buildings always come to mind for me uh, whenever I see this kind of work. And and generally speaking, when I put this building next to those two, this one is is kind of what is that? What is that phrase? Uh, the it's kind of there's this expectation that because like you said before, Paul, because of all of the things that are out there right now, we have this one very opposite end of the spectrum in terms of uh, design uh, aesthetic. But you put this building next to uh, the Natatorium in Cranbrook by Todd Williams and Billy Chen, or even Castle Vecchio. This building suffers from, a, I mean, the, the two primal images from this project are a stair and the exterior facade. And both of them, I mean, the, the, the stair is absolutely gorgeous. And, and if we were talking about images for, uh, for any, like for D-Zine or for Pinterest, fantastic. The stair is, is lovely. But the detailing of the outside, when you compare it to any of the other two buildings I just I cited, it's so plain in terms of its overall detailing. There's no there's no level of uh, there's nothing carried through to a higher level of uh, thought. It's just kind of very simple, and it's something about that simplicity. It seems like the, there's like this dumbing down of kind of 
quality design because of the high-minded design and uh, aesthetic challenges like Zaha Hadid's project would put over the top. You know, so there's not a lot of movement, you know, happening. It's very kind of still and very lovely, but it misses that mark for taking it to the next level for me. It just, it kind of seems, eh. Can I, I sympathize with what you're saying because specifically given the supposed point of the prize, which is to a piece of British architecture that furthers the the evolution of architecture is this how the Sterling Prize words it. And this is in a way, if you do interpret it as kind of a reaction to the otherwise overwhelming amount of just hype that is usually put most of the attention on, and this is kind of an antidote to that, then it's almost like happily regressing just so that it can be not too predictable, but at the same way might not also be the truest interpretation of its actual intent as, as an award. I mean, not that that's necessarily a bad thing or that we can have, and, and, and I find it frustrating too, that all of the judges comments on the Sterling Prize are submitted anonymously. So we can't, you know, endlessly go back and forth about like, well, because Schumacher said this, it must mean like that kind of interpretation. And we can't really use the personalities and the styles of the architects who are on the jury to inform our understanding of how the prize was awarded about this particular style. But it is interesting what you're saying. And it's something that happens with prizes all the time is like, how much is this prize actually going to interpret? the quality of the actual architecture and how much of it is just a response to the current media around architecture. And I swear, I don't think I'm flattering like Arcanect or ourselves too much in this kind of thing, but really of like how the discourse prioritizes or creates preferences for certain styles and then how the public prizes and the public celebrations of architecture have to inevitably deal with that in some way. Well, you know, if you go to their website, if you go to Caruso St. John Architects website, the final image in their project information, because it's the, this project is the project that's on their splash page. So the final image, and it's remarkable in exact kind of describing what I'm saying, it, you almost forget the building is even there because the projects that are in the background, it's a, it's a pretty high shot photograph of the project against the London backdrop. So you've got that stupid cell phone building, you've got the spire, <laughs> and you've got that, what's that other one that, that kind of, oh, the cucumber. The gherkin? The gherkin. Mm-hmm. So you've got the gherkin. you got three of those buildings. And you know what? I see that building and my eye is drawn right to those three vertical things in the background. And it's like, I almost don't even recognize that the building is even there. So it, it, it's so it's so stayed in its intervention on the site that I kept looking for some really touching, some kind of detail that would, I mean, if you look at the natatorium, and I, I don't want to belabor it too much, but if you look at some of the detailing that Todd Williams and Billy Chen put on that project, it's just, you find new things every time. I was just looking at the project before we got on today, and I was looking at, I'm like, man, I didn't see that before. I didn't see that before. So there is nothing here to touch. There's nothing sensual about this project that I, other than the stair. Again, the the primary images are the stair and the and the facade. And there's nothing on the outside of this building that lends me to want to touch it, investigate it more. Kind of like, oh wow, rub, do a paper rubbing on. You know, it's just nothing. There's no there's no subtlety to this project. It's kind of like, eh. Wait, wait, wait. There's no subtlety, or it's eh. too subtle. Which I, is well, it? Well, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I mean in the sense that there's there's nothing. You're right. I mean, maybe I'm saying that wrong. I guess what I'm saying is, is that it's it's so it's so ordinary in its presentation that there's nothing sensual. I guess subtlety is wrong. Sensual. There's nothing that makes me want to grab on and kind of investigate it further because it's just eh. It's different color well, brick. The, I mean, the stair. <laughs> the stair is definitely. You want to grab the stair, right? We all want to grab the stair. The I want stair to fall down amazing. those stairs. <laughs> so uh, hard. yeah, yeah. I want to. Right, right. I just want to ride that handrail all the way to the bottom. Um, <laughs> but, the, 
We're leaving that in. This is the next Hearst (laughs) performance art piece. I want to go back to deep in the history of Archonnect, the hundred word manifesto that one of the regular posters put up this this, you know, charge, this challenge for people to write a 100 word manifesto. And Stephen Ward's entry was basically a call for quiet buildings. And I think that this building fits into that landscape in that surrounding urbanscape in a quiet way, which I love. I mean, I do get your point, Ken, that there's not this like, I don't want to I don't want to use the word fetishization, fetishization, fetishization of the materials on the exterior that we might see in Todd Williams, Billy Chen work. But I do think it's this incredibly elegant handling of the brick. Now, the thing with the brick is, in a way, I kind of feel like brick has been maligned because every time the issue of context in a new building comes up in pretty much, I think, any American city, people always say, oh, just make it brick. Brick is such a nice material. So brick has sort of become this almost overused, dull kind of, you know, it's on every strip mall because somehow that makes it feel more homey. But this brick to me, again, is really beautifully handled in that it's all very different, in that it's very straightforward about just being flat planes. You know, I think it's very beautiful. I think that, you know, I I think it's almost impossible to really judge a building like this without experiencing it. Yeah, that's a very good point. So I, I think I had some of the same questions that you have, uh, Ken. You know, what is it about this building that makes it the best? And in a way, I just kind of had to trust the judges in that they they experienced this building and they came away with something that we just can't understand through looking at the photographs. I mean, I, I, we we were chatting about this as, as a group before we were recording this conversation or this podcast today about, you know, why the U.S. doesn't have a similar architecture prize to award Mm -hmm. a single project, Mm -hmm. a single building. And, you know, I think that these questions that are coming up are are part of the reason why it would be so difficult to pick one project as a winner, you know, as best project. Do you think that it's possible really to pick a a project that that can be unanimously decided as as uh, as the best project of the year? in the U.S. or anywhere, I guess. I mean, we sort of do it through AIA prizes, right? AIA gives national and local prizes to projects that are completed within the last three years or something. There's some kind of deadline around that. But so we kind of do it, but I don't think it's as celebrated as something like this prize Mm -hmm. is. So it's more within the discipline we give those prizes and people, you know, we all understand it because we're all architects. I would point out that I did a little research and in 2006 and 2007, the AIA sponsored a uh, public opinion poll to decide the favorite piece of architecture in the United States, Uh in America. Oh, God. Can you guys guess what it was? Falling water. Was it? I think you're shooting too high, man, Paul. (laughs) The White House. Yeah, probably the White House. The White House is number two. The White House is number two. Oh, my God. But above the White House is the Empire State Building. Yeah. Uh. And the comments made the comments <laughs> made around this publication, and I'm just reading from Wikipedia, but I do remember when this came out, was that people are having emotional responses to these buildings. Of course. This is not a yeah. this is not a criticism of quality. It's a, 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 a putting forth your yeah, your emotional connection to something and what it represents, more so than being actually critical of a discipline. And wholly as an iconic object, right? The, like Absolutely. the fact that you think of New York, you probably think of the Empire. You think of the American government or the American presidency, you think of the White House. It's like easy to imagine. I think it's even a lot, even though many people might have heard of Falling Water, it's even something that might be a little bit just difficult 
or more difficult for just some people to immediately visualize. And so it's just about that cogency or just like, oh, it's I can hold it in my hand. Right. I already know what it is. It's more familiar. Right. I think it's safe to say that the general public of the United States is just as qualified to vote for the best building as they are to vote for the president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're making me nervous. Oh, yes. We'll have a general election for the best piece of architecture in the U.S., but we'll also enlist some kind of We'll figure out exactly what it will be, but we'll set out some test, some architectural intelligence test that people have to take before they vote. And if they pass, then they get two points, two votes, essentially. And if they don't pass, they only get one. And then we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll just point out that the, the falling water did make the list, actually, uh, Paul, but it's number 29. And up above it at number 22 is the Bellagio in Las Vegas. <laughs> so- <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I don't think we can trust the general public to really have a nuanced judgment of architecture. I'm sure that list would be very similar if they just asked the general public to list to, to name buildings, right? A building. Name a building. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think uh, it shouldn't be a multiple choice or it shouldn't be <laughs> a multiple choice. It should be an essay. That way, <laughs> at least... <laughs> At least people get a chance to say why they love something. <laughs> mm-hmm. So going back, I mean, sorry, bringing it back to the Sterling Prize. Amelia, do we know anything about who the jury is for Sterling Prize? We do. We have the list, okay. which I can refer to shortly. But I think it's just interesting when you have these rotating juries, as you kind of necessarily have to on these kinds of right. competitions, and trying to, and knowing that in order for the people to, just as like we were saying, if the general public is going to be so completely unaware of what's going on, then you would, of course, want architects on your jury. But then, of course, you have, if you're going to have recognizable architects, you're going to have people who already have their own set kind of toolbox and style of what they consider useful and effective. And so it's not just about personal taste, but also about kind of, in a way, like reinforcing your own intellectual ability with or intellectual mm-hmm. authority within mm-hmm. these things. And it's just, I guess it's best then that we don't know exactly how the uh, comments are associated with which juror. But it's just something that, yeah, it has to be taken into account, I feel. Especially with, it's interesting too, as we'll get this with other prize winners and a few of these other competitions that we're going to discuss on today's episode, but architects that do, that collaborate with other either artists or designers or engineers or such to win projects and how that style then gets kind of subsumed into the architect's general association of what we think of as their style, whether or not they were actually responsible for it. Um, And that can kind of bring some interesting sets of, of values to other architectural competitions and, and what they deem is like, okay, then this is going to be this firm and they're going to think that's the best project. I would say that based on my limited experience with the sort of AIA awards and whatnot, that everything you just said is accurate, Amelia, that there are, <laughs> you know, there are certain preconceptions about what should happen this year versus what should happen with this firm, you know, all of mm-hmm. those things are because I it is think, a political thing. Play. And you also and of it course is. if you're especially is. for AIA, they have certain responsibility to kind of I don't want to use the word evolve, but like perpetuate a certain progressive status in the profession. Mm-hmm. So you're not right. co- like right. even if it's every year, like you always want to give it to one thing, but you know what the correct choice might be or what what gives the right impression. And it's it's why it's just fascinating to me that that competitions, I mean, competitions are extremely valuable for architecture, but at the same time can be extremely abused in in how they kind of perpetuate what is seen as good or bad or laudable pieces of work. Speaking of the jury, Patrick Schumacher was one of the jurors. Yep. Oh, was he? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. <laughs> Paul Monahan. 
we have the complete list of jurors on the architect post uh, declaring the winner. So you guys can refer to that in the show notes. But okay. it's definitely it's it's kind of like an interesting bag where you read these anonymous comments and you're like, ooh, I wonder who who actually thought that. Yeah, I'm going to do that now. Totally. <laughs> well, do we have any more thoughts on Sterling Prize or should we move on to Aga Khan? I'll just to go back to your original question, Amelia. Did you have any thoughts on any of the winners, the people that did not win, the the, the buildings that did not win? Well, initially, you posed that question to us. Yes. So Nicholas Brody in our office posted the uh, the winning news for Cruz of St. John, and we were looking and on Twitter, like constantly waiting for the announcement to come up, and looking at prior firms that had been shortlisted, and trying to make our own guesses about like you know who would win. And the BBC ran an interesting poll where they were seeing among the shortlisted projects which one the, the public thought would, would should have won. And it was not the Caruso St. John. It was Outhouse Gloucester by Loin & Co. Architects. And which is actually a house, not a not an outhouse. Is, yes, it should be said. It's not. It's not a. It's <laughs> not a toilet. It, it contains a good old fashioned toilet where you don't have to get your feet wet to use it. It is a nice house, and I and it's a beautiful house. It's, it's a very beautiful project. And to echo what Paul was saying before, it's, it is really hard to kind of gauge or to compare a home like this to an art gallery, right? How do you effectively interpret either space as, say, better? <laughs> unequivocally better than the other. Well, I mean, with a public poll too, I mean, they're looking at a, a photo of a house that everybody can relate to that is furnished very nicely. You know, it's, they probably look at this house and they're like, oh my God, I, I want that house. So mm -hmm. I, I love that project. It's hard to relate with a gallery or a large public building. Yeah. Um, also the house is white. So maybe they just like it because it's a white house. I think it's concrete. concrete. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my joke fell flat. Uh, <laughs> Americans like the White House, well, so maybe the people, yeah. next week. <laughs> you know what? To I be, didn't realize to be there fair, was mom humor. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair to Theresa May and future Brexit plans, I hope the BBC blocked all IP addresses not based in England. That's right. To from voting right. on this because it would be pretty yeah. unfair for like non for like Americans to flood yeah. the. <laughs> online BBC Absolutely. poll. They don't want any outsiders. The yeah. Yeah. Uh. We don't want to taint the uh, the reliability of online polls. <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> I think it's particularly frustrating when you look at some of these projects and the, the Trafalgar Place project is absolutely just, I mean, when I was talking about before about brick and we were talking about detailing, I mean, Trafalgar Place is impeccably detailed and the brick is stunningly amazing. I mean, I can't talk enough about how well it's crafted. And, you know, I don't know how you put a house in a Sterling Prize. I mean, all these other projects are is on some measure public projects. And here's this one. I mean, maybe the, eh, it's a gallery. I, I still would not put a house in, in a, it seems ill-placed in a competition to this scale. I propose we start okay. an awards competition that is just solely based on what buildings Ken wants to rub up against. Because it seems <laughs> yeah. like it seems like he wants to touch. It's all based on that that tactile uh, experience. Okay, what are we going to call it? The, yeah, no, let's not even You got to grab him yeah. by the brick. You got to exactly. grab him by the brick. <laughs> grab him by the brick. That's what we can call it. The grab him by the brick prize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're constantly talking right, about architecture needing to be more interactive and more, you know, responsive. Grab them by the grab them by the. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, architecture cannot consent. So I guess, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, it can't. All right. Well, speaking of grab them by the brick, maybe we should just move on to the Trump. That that sounds like the automatic transition, doesn't it? Yeah. Which was, I believe, this news was announced. 
before the tapes on this prior Friday were released with the infamous line that we've been referencing. So maybe, which if it were to happen, if the competition were to happen now, I'm sure we would get many related proposals. Or not we, but the uh, the host of this competition, which was, a, I don't know, this was not a typical architecture competition, obviously, but it was more about creating images of Donald Trump <laughs> basically excommunicated from the U.S. It was a satirical competition that wanted to riffing on Donald Trump's proposal to create an architecture competition to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico instead to build a wall between Mr. Trump and everyone else. And the imagery here that it was just, you know, a, a call for images, basically. So there's not there's no traditional architecture necessarily, but people got pretty creative. It's pretty fun. It's basically a call for memes. It's basically like a creation of of uh, simplistic images that can kind of tickle us in various satirical ways. But also something that really reminded me of our conversation with Sean Lally a couple episodes ago about the creation of science fiction environments and sci-fi scenarios based on architectural imaginations and the ability to kind of predict the future through architecture and both predict and create the future through architecture. And not to say that any of these images are going to create a future where, say, Trump is eating a slice of pizza that has been made out of the Trump Tower or Trump is trapped in the Trump Tower that is on fire with drones all around it as different (laughs) competition entries to this competition imagined. But instead, something that allows architects to kind of work in the really short term and just imagine a kind of ridiculous but nonetheless funny uh, scenario that they know, of course, will not be built, but kind of taps into that sci-fi imagination a little bit in a, in a really outlandish, fun way. I actually like the uh, third runner-up. I think that's probably the closest thing to what's just happened over the weekend. It's a Drump Odyssey by uh, Sarah Castillo, where the primates are stroking in a GIF Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked uh, the one. <laughs> <laughs> they they seem to be actually kind of groping the tower at the at the crotch level. Yeah, that's very prescient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on from that, from the uh, from the crotch references, did you guys hear what uh, about the dress that Melania wore to the? Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, that's actually one of my favorite aspects of the whole thing. Go ahead, Paul. Tell our listeners that don't know what the story is behind that blouse. Yeah, this is was, this isn't an FCC the, uh, controlled. The, the Gucci pussy bow dress mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. okay uh, i guess, that's I guess what everybody you wear. knows that, that apparently yeah. what a troll that's what it's called <laughs> yeah, if you wear that big floppy up. bow at your <laughs> at your neck it's called a pussy bow who knew i didn't but yeah i i i just want to give millennia credit for that actually being trolling i'm i'm hoping that she actually really did do that on purpose uh, who knows if she i think did. it was whoever dresses her every yeah. day yeah i think they oh i think that there's a strong eat the rich component to the trump staff i would guess and that they would enjoy oh little things like that i i hope so <laughs> i liked the um the one the second runner-up by rob anderson called the future is bleak where he basically just put in a gif of Trump's face onto the screen in Blade Runner where the woman is doing the advertising. I like it because it makes me think about, you know, imagined futures and how we sort of thought at this point we'd be living in a world that worked a certain way, but instead we have the, we're facing this really unimaginable horror that we are facing that's very different from what we would have predicted i think so i liked that one i also just like that this competition by not on purpose but memes have become a really really potent aspect mm. of mm-hmm. this election cycle and we've seen things on the internet go from completely innocuous to icons of alt-right fascism in like a matter of months right. just through use right. on the internet and certain memes and it's like Again, this is not the intent of this competition, but it just reminds us that things like this can be used for very potent reasons and, and can have 
kind of unforeseen consequences and just how they affect people's public opinions um, on these candidates, especially given all the extra attention on media and its influence over the political discourse that Trump has kind of <laughs> made painfully obvious in so many situations. It's interesting that the uh, this competition announced its results right around the same time that the, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border wall competition was supposed to announce the results of their competition. That didn't seem to really... Uh, do, do you guys remember that competition? The mm-hmm. border wall Yeah, whatever happened to it? I it, it, They still have the fake jury list on the website with no winners announced, so mm. I assume that nothing happened. But they didn't make any announcements about, about it being canceled. It could still happen, I guess. The thing that that competition made me think of, I don't know if you all saw in one of the last season of Better Call Saul, there was an opening sequence that traced a guy driving a truck across the border from Mexico into California. And it was a opening sequence that was done in one continuous shot. And it was fantastic in how it portrayed that vitality and activity that happens at a border crossing. Yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful piece of filmmaking, basically. That just kind of reminded me that, yeah, I mean, you guys live in LA. You live with a border very nearby and you're you probably cross it frequently. You know, it is an active part of so many people's lives to be able to go from one country to another. And yeah, that I, it was just a beautiful, beautiful piece of filmmaking. I'll see if I can figure out what uh, episode it was so we can maybe find a link to it. I know there was an article about how it was made because it was just this one continuous shot that went from country to country. It was oh, wow. beautiful. Reminds me of this entire, this is also a little bit tangential, but there's an entire like world of YouTube videos that are people's border crossing videos. Oh, partially wow. from like a kind of activist standpoint of like being harassed at the mm-hmm. border and wanting to just record it, but partly just because it's so strange. It's it can be such a disconcerting experience and people want to record it <laughs> or cuz they're just excited about it and they're like, "Oh my god, I've never crossed into another country." Interesting. Huh. So moving on to our final competition that we're going to discuss for this episode, we have the 2016 Aga Khan Award for Architecture, which only comes out every three years. So it's pretty exciting. And in terms of monetary prizes, it is the largest single amount of money given out, although not necessarily all to one person. It's a million dollars total in this year split up among six different winners from all over the world. And as many have pointed out, these this slew of winners were notable not only for kind of the variety of pieces that are represented here. We have not just like buildings, but infrastructural projects and playgrounds. But for the fact that many of the awards went to women architects and for the design of Muslim spaces. And the Aga Khan Award is in particularly focused around Muslim communities or, or particularly where Muslims have a significant presence. But it's still nonetheless an interesting development that that also would be reflected in the award winners. And there's a pretty wide variety of projects here. One of the ones that we were talking about a little bit before recording today was Super Keelan, which is a Copenhagen playground designed with uh, Big and Topotech One and Superflex. And this is a pretty fantastic playground, I got to say. I've, unfortunately, it's the only project I've actually been to of this year's Con winners, but it's just a crazy place. It's like a, a very interesting collection of purposely kind of borrowed cultural icons from all over Europe and all over the world, particularly also with a few Muslim iconographies from Turkey. And the idea initially, from at least from my understanding, was that it was installed in this neighborhood that had a, uh, a history in the 90s of particular kind of social unrest. There were a lot of riots in the way of immigrant communities that were having 
various social integration difficulties within the Danish system, which is pretty rigorous. Like the the ways that Danish immigration works will pretty much uh, require a lot of a lot of hoops to be jumped through in order to successfully integrate immigrants into the Danish society. And this was not going super well in the 90s in this neighborhood. And so this park, while not installed until much later, was kind of a, a bit of an extension towards rectifying that. But it's nonetheless in a, you know, the Danish capital city. So it's in a way you think like, huh, Muslim communities and like the, the Danish capital city, like what's that about? And then it kind of unravels very specific history to the area. And the fact that the park itself is just, it's just a weird look, like for an American, it's a very weird looking <laughs> place. Like you look at that as like a park and you're like, well, I guess it's a park. I guess there's like toys and stuff, but it's just a fantastic piece of landscape architecture. The way that they've kind of just split it up into different parts and created these different moods and cultural touchstones throughout it is really fascinating. It, it's one that I have not looked closely at until it won this this prize. And I think the most notable thing about it is that it, it photographs exceptionally well because of this portion of the park that's just pink, right? Mm-hmm. It's just Red it's like pink it's on the called. ground, pink up the walls of the buildings, pink on everything, pink leafed trees. Like it's completely pink. And so it's kind of shocking to see. But then when you hear more about how this process came about and what all of these objects from various cultures around the world represent this coming together of people. It's a little bit Pomo sounding, but I actually think it looks amazingly successful. And so Amelia, you've actually been in it. Mm -hmm. And how does it function? And does it how does it compare to other sort of European big squares? I mean, it just it seems like people just enjoy hanging out there in a way that I feel like a lot of the the public spaces in in the U.S. might have the end. This is a fast generalization, obviously, but the um, (laughs) but the the, the tendency is either to over program or under program where you're either like just going to have like total wandering planes or you're going to have a distraction every 50 feet or something like that. And I feel that this, it, it's very much in the city. Like you never really feel like you're secluded in a Central Park kind of scenario, but you have all these things going on and you really have different enough nodes for people to really just either sit completely still and do nothing in them and feel completely at one with the public space or be incredibly engaged by like riding a bike or going on a swing set or a slide or something like that. And just having it be also relatively linear. The park is split up into three major areas and like one with the the red square that we were talking about previously and one in kind of a green space. And so you can have that variety of activity in a more avenue style setup. So different parts of the city kind of get that that vein or that backbone to all rest upon. So in that way, it functions, would you say, a little like the High Line, you know, which is not so much a place to go to as a place to walk along? That was really interesting that you mentioned that because I was just thinking about that when I was reviewing this for the podcast. And it's it's not, I mean, it's not a place that you would go, okay, again, like I'm an American tourist. I've like been to Denmark a bunch of times and I'm yeah, like, so yeah. I don't, I, I guess I can't say at all like what the, the natural tendency might be for a Copenhagener. But I, I think that something like the High Line, it's like, you go there because you know it's a thing and you you have you seek it yeah. out and you go yeah. up there and you you take photos or whatever. This is just it very much feels like you're st- you're just in the city. It's just a very yeah. well integrated part of the city and it helps that you're in a dense residential area but you're also surrounded by other public like activity halls and that kind of stuff. So you're really just like in it in a place that is designed for you to just stay in it and not have to worry about whether you're coming or going but just hang out. And I think that I mean like, again, it just seems so anemic, the kind of public parks that we have in L.A. specifically to kind of rely on <laughs> or to like think of. And particularly now, there are a couple under construction that I see every day. There's the California State Historic Park that has been under construction for, I think, like six, maybe even 10 years. It's kind of a it's a it's huge amount of land north of Chinatown that is being developed into a park. And it's just it already looks 
like it's going to be one of those kind of overly programmed places. And you kind of look at it and you're like, ah, oh, that's too bad. It could be a huge missed opportunity. But that's as far as I can tell. I was very excited to see Super Healing on this list and, and wish that I could go to any of these other projects, especially the um, the Tabiat Pedestrian Bridge in Tehran, which looked just fascinating. Like it was a, it has many different layers of circulation. So people going in either direction and did seem to also kind of borrow certain elements from at least visually reminded me of the High Line that you have this bridge specifically for pedestrians. And that does become kind of a, a tourist spot for people to take selfies and that kind of deal. You know, I, I do like the park. I do like the park. I'll say that. The two projects I like the most are the ones that, to me, kind of show the hand of uh, and the influence of uh, Louis Kahn the most. And those are the two brick projects. Fancy that. Hmm. Oh, Both in Bangladesh. Grab that brick, Ken. Grab that brick. <laughs> Both in Bangladesh. And and what's so, what's so fascinating about these projects is it's kind of turn my Western thinking on its end, thinking that, well, the the more indigenous the project, the less connected to modernism it is. It's more like really so contextually situated in a place that I can't see. But these spaces are done so well and so well-rooted and connected to the community, but done with such a modern take. I mean, the, the light in those spaces, the, the the material is so, so beautiful and handled in such a, a very uh, fine way that I can't pick those projects up and put them any other place. And that's probably my biggest regret with uh, all of the other. The bridge is a little just, it's just clunky to me. Um, I like the idea of the bridge and the, and the spaces underneath the, the pedestrian uh, walkway, but it just seems very it just seems every time i see photos of it, it just seems odd to me again the zaha building pick it up put it anywhere nobody gives a shit the park <laughs> the park again it's one of those things it's connected by virtue of you know it's rooted in its but i look at that and i go i can see that built anywhere in in the world but those two projects in bangladesh and even the one in china seem so well connected to place site and uh the the, the context it just seems they're so well connected and still there's a there's a connection to modern thinking that I just I fall in love when I see those kinds of projects because I'm like wow modernism is well and it's doing pretty well so I really gravitated to those three projects the mosque is really beautiful really the everything about the way it handles light you're right it feels very modern but also very very vernacular and appropriate it's yeah it's absolutely gorgeous. I do love it. And I love that it was designed by a female architect. I mean, you know, we're, we're, it's becoming more common, which I love. <laughs> female Muslim architect. Female Muslim, even more so. Exactly. Exactly. I just, uh, I find the Friendship Center in Bangladesh just to be totally jaw-dropping. I mean, it's just, there's something about that space that I just want to, I want to experience that. I mean, the way that it's layered and, and uh, just seamless with the landscape. And the spaces inside are just, I mean, it, it's like something um, surreal. It's, it's very dreamlike. And yet, apparently with a very, in, you know, a very um, technical intent of dealing with water level changes, right? I mean, it's about being, what's the popular word right now? Being resilient, <laughs> as well as being very contemplative at the same time, mm -hmm. I think. Grab it by the brick. <laughs> <laughs> episode title. I think we know what our episode yeah. title is. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think we can wrap up. It's really nice to talk about Trump and sort of those things, but then to end on this really just beautiful, definitely award winning for worthy reasons discussion. Mm -hmm. This is really beautiful work. The Aga Khan Prize is a pretty amazing um, program, I think. Aga Khan Award. So definitely we're, we're fortunate. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's our episode this week. 
Amelia, do we have a one-to-one coming up next week? We do. In honor of the Acadia Conference, which is happening October 27th through 29th at the University of Michigan, I spoke with the co-chairs of the workshops that are happening at that conference, Katie Newell and Wes McGee. And we basically just talk about all of the exciting things happening at the conference, but also just in general, their thoughts on how computational design is constantly evolving and what the kind of exciting topics that they're going to discuss at this conference will be. Cool. Well, that'll be out on Monday. So watch for that on the one-to-one podcast. Thanks to everybody out there listening this week. Uh, Let us know what you think about these news roundup episodes. Do you like them? Do you prefer when we have guests on? And uh, give us some feedback. You can send those that feedback to us through Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. Or you can send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy it, don't rate us. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to everybody next week. Till next week. Talk to you next week. Thanks, guys.